0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. I have always been fascinated with numbers. They, for some reason, just stand out to me. So when I study the Bible, I'm always seeing the numbers in the Bible. I love God's use of numbers, like 2, 3, and 4. Eight is an amazing one. Of course, 12, 24, 40, 41, 50, and 52 all have unique meaning, too. But there is one number that might possibly outrank all the others in God's fun number system, and that is the number seven. Hey, this is Eric. Before we dive into this message and behold God's amazing kingdom system for rule and care that is strangely associated with the number seven, I wanted to mention that this entire series on World War II that I've been going through is organized for you and available for easy access on our website. You can find the previous 81 episodes by going to Ellersley.com forward slash daily. Now let's visit the Allied battlefront on the borders of Germany in March of 1945, and let's experience the martial powers and the military genius of General Bernard Montgomery's Seven Generals system. Good morning, everyone. The Wednesday edition of Daily Thunder. We are uh, in an exciting zone of World War II as this is unfolding. This particular message is, uh, to say unusual, uh, would be an understatement. It is a very, very significant meditation in my life that I've had for years. Uh, And so the fact that it is going to, a piece of it at least, is going to sort of uh, unveiled today is interesting, and I've just been fascinated by sort of asking God, why, how, how did this all work? And it's, it's all because of what is taking place in World War II, and it's somewhat, somewhat of an obscure observation in the memoirs of Winston Churchill that I'm drawing from. I'm, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to unpack something that is actually a, something that I've chewed on for, for years, and it's, it's a hard thing to know how to enunciate, But for instance, when I look at uh, the Proverbs, I see something. When I'm growing up, I see something that is just like, well, it's something that is like an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Maybe a proverb a day sort of keeps my spiritual uh, bad health at bay, you know, that type of a thing. And so as a result, I sort of chew on Proverbs, but I don't really know how they affect my life. They just are good pieces of information and, you know, interesting data. And as I grow up in the kingdom of heaven and as I was transformed by Jesus Christ, I began to see the wisdom of God laid out in a very tactical manner, and I began to realize what this is. This is a king communicating with a king of how to lead a nation. And that surprises my soul, to be honest with you, because the way that most of us grow up reading the Proverbs is we're hearing, yes, a king speaking, but we're appropriating it to our individual life which is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that because the truth of leading a nation and the truth of leading an individual life are the same. And that's what's so fascinating about this message is you're dealing with these massive scale issues of leading troops into battle on a 250-mile front. I mean, that's amazing. And you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops. I mean, this is so unusual in the history of warfare that you're going to have seven to ten day battles instead of one day battles now the battles in world war one some of those are going to last for like uh, months and even a year you know so it's like whoa and but they're highly irregular they're trench warfare which is a whole different uh, subject in and of itself but these active engagement battles at the level that we're going to see them in World War II are shocking. If you were a student of war history up to this time, you've never seen anything like this. And so what we're going to see is at this unique time of the Allied troops, finally they cross the Rhine and they're making their steps into Germany. It was a pretty momentous occasion considering this is all going to start with Germany encroaching on everyone else's territory. Now you have the official turn of the tide, right? At least for the allies, where they feel, all right, we've gotten it back to the way it was. Now we're going to silence that enemy. And so Churchill is going to join the crossing. He wants to be a part of the crossing, the official crossing. So that's where we're going to pick up sort of in his memoirs. And this message is called The Seven Generals, and that'll make sense as we uh, unfold. March 24th, 1945, and so we just started in 1945, I know, uh, in the last message, and now we're already in March, so this is moving quite a quick, isn't it? And I, ironically, that sort of fits what's happening in the battle right now. Once the Battle of the Bulge concludes, everything starts moving very quickly. You have an unfolding of history that is happening, and I would almost say uncomfortably fast, because the Allies are unprepared for how to handle The conclusion of the war. And that's sort of what I hinted at last time, but you have Stalin who is going to, is sweeping through Poland, and that's what our last message was on, was Poland. Poland is going to be caught in the middle, and that was the name of the last message even. And they're going to end up not just suffering in World War II, but suffering after World War II, because they're going to come under communist rulership. And the allies are unprepared. Something is going to happen in just a few weeks that is going to remove the president of the United States from power and he is he has been a part of he's he's been in the presidency for what twelve years at this time and suddenly at the most crucial time of historical development when you have just broken to pieces Europe and then tried and removed the guy who was the, the the problem. Now you have all history hanging in the balance. Well how's Europe gonna be defined? And one of the key characters is going to die at the exact moment we're in the discussions on that. And so as a result, the Cold War that is going to come out of this is a result of all these factors. And most of us grew up in what we understood as the Cold War. That's all happening right now. So things are happening almost too fast. As strange as that is, we've been slogging through trying to fight Hitler. Now suddenly we're going to break through. Now we're crossing the Rhine. We're headed into Germany. It's like, yay. But if we win this as fast as it's going to happen, then We're not ready to know what to do with all these nations that have been battered. What do we do when we remove the Nazi troops? Who's in charge now after the previous government was killed? (laughs) Who's now ruling over here? And so what if Stalin now possesses that territory because he kicked out the Nazis? Well, what do you think is going to happen? I think most of us can guess since we grew up with most of Eastern Europe being communists. In other words, that's all happening right now. So March 24th, 1945, the crossing into Germany. So Winston Churchill says in his memoirs, I desired to be with our armies at the crossing and Montgomery made me welcome. So this is uh, General, he's the supreme commander in this situation, uh, Bernard Montgomery. And so he's a British guy. And so uh, Churchill is uh, sort of cherishing and relishing this situation so here's what I would like to bring you into. Now, most people might not find this at all intriguing, right? And so the things that Eric lands on, I don't land on battle strategy always. I don't land on, you know, the military weaponry. And this, you'll notice I hardly ever talk about those things. I mean, I have. I've talked about different things, but most of it's like bigger stuff, like uh, landing craft or the pipeline system, Operation Pluto. Those things intrigue me, but guns and planes. I don't ever go into any details on those. And that's partly just. Me, right? That's not actually what intrigues me about war. It, the same thing, but you take Kip, my son, and you know what he wants to talk about? Guns and planes and tanks. I mean, that's what he's interested in. So it's just funny how we're all wired a little differently. So if someone else went through the same series, they would pick up on so many different things than I pick up on. But what I'm interested in is spiritual terrain. I'm interested in how it overlays with how we function as Christians. And this is profound to me. So at 8 p.m. on March 24th, 1945, we repaired to the map wagon, and I now had an excellent opportunity of seeing Montgomery's methods of conducting a battle on this gigantic scale. For nearly two hours, a succession of young officers of about the rank of major presented themselves. Each had come back from a different sector of the front. They were the direct personal representatives of the commander in chief, and could go anywhere and see anything and ask any questions they liked of any commander. As in turn they made their reports and were searchingly questioned by their chief, the whole story of the day's battle was as the, as the whole story of the day's battle was unfolded. This gave Monty—that's the nickname for Montgomery. A complete account of what had happened by highly competent men whom he knew well and whose eyes he trusted. It afforded an invaluable cross check to the reports from all the various headquarters and from the commanders. By this process, he was able to form a more vivid, direct, and sometimes more accurate picture. So, just as a summary, you have this massive front, okay, let's say 250 miles, okay, that's a round number. And you have so many different generals under a supreme commander, under a general. So you have a load of generals. So you'll notice even from, you know, the title, when I say seven generals, it's not because in this story I've actually studied out that there were seven generals. That's not, that's not my point. You'll, you'll understand as I go through this. But there's a lot of generals out in the field under one general. But how do you coordinate all of that so that you're all doing the same thing? along a 250-mile front. And so what Montgomery has is he has these officers that are noted, and I'm not sure if they wore a special badge, if they were all just introduced to the generals ahead of time. I'm not sure what the coordination was amongst them. Churchill doesn't actually know either. He's just observing this. And he's watching with a certain sense of awe how this is coordinated because these men have access anywhere on the field to all the generals and they can come up and they can ask any question and they have the right to do it even though they're lower ranking. They are searching out all the information and then they're going to come back and they're going to be cross-checked against each other. Is your information matching up with my information? And then they're all bringing and briefing Montgomery so he has his mind wrapped around 250 miles of front And all the general's minds along the way are all being given to him so that he knows everything. And then he sends the directives back to these men, and they go back and take his uh, commands. That's that's pretty cool, right? I mean, I I like this. And so I'm intrigued already just reading this, just on the fascination level. But it's going to trigger something a little bigger for me as we continue. The officers ran great risks. And of the seven or eight to whom I listened on this and succeeding nights, two were killed in the next few weeks. So this is a highly risky venture for these men because they're going through the intense parts of the battle in and out, in and out constantly. And actually two of those uh, were actually killed in the next few weeks. I thought the system admirable and indeed the only way in which a modern commander-in-chief could see as well as read what was going on in every part of the front. The next day, March 25th, we went to meet Eisenhower. On our way, I told Montgomery how his system resembled that of Marlborough. So Marlborough, Earl, the Earl of Marlborough is a famous military leader of Great Britain, and he's a, and Churchill is a descendant of him. So Churchill spent a good deal of time researching Marlborough, and so that is, comes out throughout his memoirs. He's always sort of referencing that. And so that's just to give you, you guys are just seeing the name Marlborough, but If you've read his memoirs, you're very familiar with Marlborough, and if you know British history, you would know Marlborough. But he says, on our way, I told Montgomery how his system resembled that of Marlborough in the conduct of battles in the 18th century, where the commander-in-chief acted through his lieutenant generals. Then the commander-in-chief sat on his horse and directed by word of mouth a battle on a five- or six-mile front, which ended in a day, and settled the fortunes of great nations, sometimes for years or generations to come. In order to make his will effective, he had four or five lieutenant generals posted at different points on the front who knew his whole mind and were concerned with the execution of his plan. These officers commanded no troops and were intended to be offshoots and expressions of the supreme commander. In modern times, the general must sit in his office conducting a battle ranging over 10 times the front and lasting often for a week or 10 days. In these changed conditions, Montgomery's method of personal eyewitnesses who were naturally treated with the utmost consideration by the frontline commanders of every grade was an interesting though partial revival of old days. So all that, I'm just getting some data out onto the table. I'm going to call them Montgomery's seven because the number seven will really help if we start getting consistent here. Now, one of the things that he said is that it was around seven or eight right? So I'm just going to land on the number seven, because it just makes it a lot easier when you're dealing with the Bible with the number seven, especially when you see where I'm going with this. And so I'm not trying to just force fit something. I'm saying this was awakened and reminded. I I was reminded of this and fascinated by the parallel as I was studying this, okay? So Montgomery's seven. They're sent into all the battle, enabling all the battle. So if you were to look at his seven as the seven generals that are out there on this 250-mile front, that would be accurate. But if you're looking at the seven messengers going back and forth, it's actually all that is, they're sent into the battle and they're enabling the battle to function. There is something that is going from the supreme commander to the sub commanders that is very, very important. And that back and forth delivery is very significant. Now, my whole point in saying this is not actually to get you intrigued with how military commanders govern a field of 250 miles. That is very, has very limited value to any of us personally. But when you understand the vast battle that the king of all kings oversees, it actually does trigger an interest point. It's like, huh. And how many churches in Revelation? Seven. And so you begin to see this unique layout of like, Huh. Wait a minute. We have something that parallels. Just just wait till I unfold it, too. So Proverbs 9.1 is going to say something that someone like Eric is going to pick up on, okay? Because I notice numbers. Some people notice different things. They notice colors in the Bible. They notice names in the Bible. They notice locations in the Bible. It's not that I don't notice those, but I notice numbers, like with extreme awareness, like a magnet. number. And, you know, most people just read it and go, what, Eric, what what did you see there? I see the number seven, right? So in this situation, I see wisdom has built her house and has hewn out her seven pillars. What an obscure statement that is, right? What does that have to do with anything? And so Eric gravitates towards a statement like that going, why? Why would God say it that way? And so you need to recognize in the New Testament, you're going to see the platform and the concept of wisdom being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who has a house. Jesus has a house that he's building, by the way. Tear down this uh, house and I'll rebuild it in three days. But the house of which he was speaking was his body. Okay, so the Old Testament temple is going to be replaced with the body of Christ. Not just the body of Christ, like Jesus Christ's very body, but then we are the body of Christ. We are the house of God. Is it possible that there are seven pillars? Just Let me read this again. Wisdom has built her house and has hewn out her seven pillars. So I'm just going to give a different phraseology for it to sort of bring it into a New Testament context. Jesus has built his house and has hewn out his seven pillars. Okay? So now that means very little to us still up to this point. If I just stopped the message right there, you'd be like, great. Wonderful, fascinating, Eric. Seven, okay. So Revelation 1, 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Okay, we got a lot of seven going on here, guys. Well, it's going to keep coming. Revelation 3, 1. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. That's the church at Sardis. Revelation 4, 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. I I understand. It's totally strange sounding, okay? Now, I'm not going to say it doesn't sound strange to me, too, even though I've read this for many years. It's like it doesn't match sort of the way we would describe it. It's, the language in Revelation sort of goes in a different direction than the way we usually are articulating everything through the epistles in the New Testament. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How, What are you saying that for? How, why are you saying it that way? But seven is a very critical number. Revelation 5, 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, so we have General Bernard Montgomery over a 250-mile front with his seven generals and his seven messengers that are going back and forth. And I don't know if you're seeing a parallel, but what I see is that there is something to do with a coordination of a movement. It's a battlefront that is taking place where each of these pieces are being knit and coordinated together like with a ligament type of a system. In other words, where the one part or the first general actually is in coordination with the fifth, and it's not the first has no clue. There is a coordination that is taking place, and what seems to be this connective tissue is something known as the spirit, And of course, in here it's saying the seven spirits of God, which is a strange way of phrasing it. And I'll hopefully give some synonym for that. So as we progress, you begin to sort of grip what this is and how this works. But what you're going to see is that the body is broken up into like a seven system uh, whole operation. Government itself is like broken up into like a seven system operation. And so it isn't an accident that we have this phraseology. Christ's seven sent into all the battle, enabling all the battle. So we see these seven stars. We see seven horns, seven eyes on this lamb that was slain, okay, which we know is Christ. So this chief commander who has the seven, who has the seven stars, who has the seven lamps, this is Christ, we know that, the chief supreme commander. I, I know Revelation is quite a, a mouthful, guys, so it's, it's not like I'm attempting to, in one little short Daily Thunder, communicate to you all the mystery of the book of Revelation. But I want to introduce you to the fact that it is not, it shouldn't be a mystery that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, That's something that we shouldn't trip over. We are seeing Jesus. We're seeing Jesus' operation. We're seeing his high position. We are recognizing that there is a distribution of his grace and that there seems to be different authorities or different allocations. And it's not just one. It is one church, but it seems to be one in seven. It's one spirit, but it's like one with seven functions seven expressions and so that's why it's unique to our brain we're like what i thought it was one church there's seven what i thought it's one spirit it is but with seemingly seven key functions that it, that are key just like it's one battle it's the allied forces and they're fighting who are you fighting i'm fighting the allies that's right on a 250 mile front but there's seven different generals that are under one, that are bringing this about to win one end. So the sevens that we've already found so far, the seven pillars in in Proverbs, the seven churches, the seven spirits, the seven lamps of fire, the seven stars, the seven horns, the seven eyes. That's a lot of sevens in a short period of time already, okay? And I'm not even trying to dig them up. I'm just giving you ones that directly relate to what we're talking about. So Proverbs 9.1, I don't know if you've ever heard this scripture before, but wisdom has built her house and has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, remember, Paul in the New Testament is going to say, do you, you do, not, do you not know that we are the temple of the living God? Do you not know that we are that house that wisdom has built? Do you not know this? And so we are the house that wisdom builds. It's called, it builds. We're, we're called the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is this house that God is building. The seven systems of the body, each one unique, each one important. So we could break up the body into more than seven. We could, but at the same time, it fits well into a seven system uh, understanding. So let's imagine that wisdom or the head, the frame, the structure, the command, communication, the head is going to build this, this body. So, pillar number one the respiratory or the breath, the breathing system. Pillar number two, the endocrine or the growth or the growing system. Pillar number three, the immune or the defense, the defense system, the purifying system. Pillar number four, the digestive, the proper, I call it the proper use of resource. Something comes in and then what's the digestive system doing? It's grabbing what it needs to supply to the rest of the body. And so you can talk about a supply line, you know, in military terms, you have a digestive system, which is going to say, I'm going to need that over here. Hey, I could use a little of this over here. I could take that protein and actually add it to this muscle over here. In other words, it's digesting, it's taking, it's extracting and getting rid of waste. So that's the proper use of resource, the delegation system. Pillar number five, the muscular, the proper direction of that strength. So now you have strength in a military sense. I mean, this is how the military works. It's the same type of thought process. It's a body of troops. It's a body of soldiers. And they need to know how to coordinate so that right hand and left hand are working in tandem. They are together in this, accomplishing the same thing. And so as a result, the proper direction of strength. You could have strength and misuse it. But what is the proper direction of the muscular side of your life? Pillar number six, the circulatory or the proper spreading of strength, the giving system. This strength is not meant to be hoarded for yourself. It's meant to be given. And so how do you deliver that? And so you're even going to see the circulatory system is delivering and keeping all the body strong. It's not putting all the blood into the right hand and saying, that's where I want to emphasize today. It's knowing how to properly balance that so that all the body is strong. And pillar number seven, the reproductive or the reproduction, the replicating system. What we have here, we need to also do over there. In other words, we need to reproduce this. This life needs to continue. And so this is how the body is built. And I'm just saying, wisdom is hewn out her seven pillars, We have something that we're just, you could look at this as just the human body, but you could also begin to translate that into the body of Christ. You could translate it into a military operation. You could translate it into a business. I mean, this is how a functional body, whether it's an individual or a corporate group, functions. The seven agencies of government, each one unique, each one important. If you're building a government, it's interesting because you could just reason with me on this. There's basically, and you could come up with more uh, and, and break them into smaller groups, but in a general overarching sense, this is what is included in it, and that's seven. Education, which, you know, in the Old Testament is like law and Proverbs. We need to understand God's mind, His righteousness, and His wisdom. And so the education of a culture is part of what a government at least is going to sponsor. Whether or not they should be over it is a whole discussion point, right? They should be the ones teaching it. They should protect it and preserve it as a point of importance for the development of that which is in that nation. Justice or judgment, you have to have a good justice system. Otherwise, your nation's gonna fall to pieces. Economy, you need to know how to deal with your time, your talents, and your resources, Now, we, you could look at this as self-government and say, you know that every one of these things actually matters to you as an individual, self-governed, and if you're going to rule a nation, it doesn't change. The same seven things are going to need to be tended to. And guess what? If you don't tend to all seven, what happens? Well, you could pick something on this list and just lift it out and say, you know, I'm going to neglect that. And you're going to find it's sort of like neglecting your right leg. You know, if your right leg gets neglected, no blood goes to it, you're going to have issues in your whole body. In other words, if you say, decide, I'm not going to, I'm going to neglect my immune system or how about I'm going to neglect, uh, trying to, I was going to use reproductive, but uh, that, that could be good to neglect for a season. Uh, if I'm going to neglect something, I want to make sure that I recognize up front, it's going to cost the whole operation its life. And so all of these seven work together. And if they're not working together, there's death. Economy, time, talents, and resources. Interior. So if you've ever heard of the Department of the Interior, the Ministry of the Interior. Tongue, sexuality, appetite, thoughts. All this. Even the term interior is like really good. That's a great word for it. The Ministry of the Interior. Doesn't that sound like an operation of the Holy Spirit to us, right? But these are all operations of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of them, which I'm giving something away in saying that. In other words, that is how Montgomery's rulership over the allies is working. It's working with this replication of the Holy Spirit, going back and forth to and from. He's, he's the, these guys are the ones doing all the work, right? But there is one head that is directing it. Energy and power, the power to do it. Defense, protection, fortification, health, the ministry of health. I mean, all these things, this is how a government works. If you have a, a pandemic, well, there is operations in place, even though some of us wonder if it was properly handled in this situation. But you are supposed to be on guard against a pandemic. I mean, that's actually what is supposed to be out there as a government to preserve the integrity of a nation And so what you see is all of these things working together create what we call a righteous government. The seven graces of faith, each one unique, each one important. So in the Bible, we're going to see this articulation of the same thing, but we're now going to go interior into the life of a believer. It's sort of like wisdom has built her house and is now hewing out her seven pillars. So 2 Peter 1, 2 through 10. but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And so you're going to see these things. You have come to Christ by faith. So how are we saved? By grace through faith. So what you're going to see is that when a believer turns and trusts, puts confidence in Jesus Christ, they believe. That faith is going to unlock something known as grace, which is what saves you. It doesn't just save you from eternal hellfire, it saves you from remaining as you are. It is going to build up, it's going to hew the pillars of strength in your life. And that's what you're going to see here. Add to your faith virtue, number one. To virtue, knowledge, number two. To knowledge, self-control, number three. To self-control, perseverance, number four. To perseverance, godliness, number five. To godliness, brotherly kindness, number six. And to brotherly kindness, love, Now listen to what it says about this. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. There's an operation, a military operation that we could look at in World War II and say, "Ha, huh, well, that's that's smart." That he's coordinating seven different generals all at the same time along a 250 mile uh, front. I mean, that's that's really cool. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. But what's far more interesting to me is how God is coordinating His work, both in the global scale all the way down to the minute individual level, of how He is marshaling the head over this body. And bringing the seven into agreement so that my body is showcasing a righteous government. It is showcasing the virtues of heaven. So how does that work? It seems to work in and through something being added to faith. Faith, when it is present, is going to unlock what we know as grace. And these have been historically known as the seven graces. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And so, how many graces are there? Isn't there just grace? I mean, there's grace. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by the seven graces. Yes, it's true. We're saved by grace. The working of God on our behalf. But then that grace can be divided into different operations or emphases. Still grace. Just like the Holy Spirit is not seven. He's one. But he has seven, seems to have seven different emphases, that he is caretaking for along this battlefront to make sure that the body is functioning as a whole to bring down an enemy. The seven graces of faith. Erite, virtue, the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. So what do you need when you first start out this thing? You need a little erite. And so to your faith, You need to add something. You need that grace for overcoming sin and beginning to walk in triumph so you're not just going to be pushed around by the devil. Gnosis, knowledge, the grace for understanding truth and walking in faith. And then add to that, egreteia, self-control, the grace for guarding the soul from sin's encroachment and walking in self-control. Have you noticed that these sound strangely similar to the government things that we talked about? Yeah, it sounds strangely similar to the bodily uh, systems too. Hupomone, the gra- or perseverance, the grace for endurance, perseverance, and immovability. Number five, Eusebia, godliness, the grace for honorable action. Philadelphia, number six, brotherly love, the grace for people. You ever had a recognition that you need a grace for dealing with people? Well, I don't know uh, if you've ever run across that need, but you need it. You need it added to the whole uh, kit and caboodle. It's like, okay, I have a grace for overcoming sin in my life. I'm not going to fear anymore. But then this turkey comes into your life that really irritates you, and you recognize you need brotherly love. You need that grace, that function of the Holy Spirit in you as well. Isn't that just a fascinating thought? It's not just a blanket, oh, you have the Holy Spirit. It's the operations of God coming and sending specific help to the front to say, I have what you need for that. You see, many of us have a tendency to emphasize one of the seven. That's what's interesting about our development. We have a tendency to be imbalanced. The Spirit of God and, and the head is not imbalanced in how he circulates the blood in the body. He is not just choosing one part of the body to say, I'm gonna deal with this part now. He is going to send it throughout and he's going to bring wholeness throughout that body. And then finally, agape, love, love. The grace for walking in all the graces and for revealing God's very nature and behavior always. The coordination of the knockout punch. So imagine that, you know, I have a bad guy in front of me and I'm like, but how do I knock him out? There's a need, you know, because we know it has to do with a fist, right? But if all I said was, you just need to ball up your hand into a fist, that is an incorrect statement. There's actually multiple things that need to work in tandem. However, the fist is going to be the key point that is going to strike the blow. But that fist needs something and it needs to work in agreement with a system. And if that whole system isn't agreement isn't in agreement with the fist, cuz the head could say ball up into a fist, but if the head isn't also communicating with this arm and this shoulder, we have problems. In other words, we're not going to end up striking the knockout blow. The fist must be in agreement with the arm, which must be in agreement with the shoulder, which must be in agreement with the hip, which must be in agreement with the feet, which must be in agreement with the heart, which must be in agreement with the mind, which must be in agreement with the spirit, which must be in agreement with the word. And so as a result, when this all comes together, you recognize that there's a movement that can actually deal a blow to the Nazis. Okay, sorry, I'm bringing in the Nazis again. I'm I'm mixing my metaphors throughout this, but hopefully you guys are enjoying that fact. In other words, that we have an enemy, but to be able to coordinate this body to deliver the blow to that enemy, it can't just be one local church here in Windsor that is balling up into a fist. It's like there's something to do with those seven all working in tandem to deliver a blow that causes devastation to the enemy camp, which is why the devil wants to disconnect the fist from the arm and the arm from the shoulder and the shoulder from the hip and the hip from the heart. I'm trying to guess at what my list was. And the heart from the mind and the mind from the spirit and the spirit from the word. There's a reason why there is that division, that denominationalism that is created to say, look, you know, as a fist, I just don't get you as a shoulder. You just don't make any sense to me, okay? You, you keep talking about the fact that you, you move like this, and I'm saying, no, you ball up. And the, the shoulder's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Ball up. How do you ball up a shoulder? And so as a result, they have a tendency not to see the value of how the other one is designed and assigned to function. The seven aspects to the spiritual life. So we have these dimensions, whether it's the seven graces, whether it is the seven agencies of government, you, know, you could look at it either way today. If any one of these is left unattended or is marginalized or is diminished, it actually makes the whole operation vulnerable. Let's, let's imagine we have a front of soldiers and let, let's say we have seven groupings or divisions along the front line and so let's say that he, over each of those divisions is a general, okay? Now imagine general number four over here decides to, or maybe Montgomery decides not to include him because he doesn't like him. So he's not gonna tell him what to do and he's just gonna let him make his own decisions. Or say that general goes rogue and just decides, you know, I think I could do this a lot better the, than general Montgomery could. And so he just is going to decide to do something and that's go the other way. What you have is a breach you have an opening in the line, which can actually cause the devastation of all the rest of the troops. Unless those divisions are in agreement, functioning together, you're not going to win this thing. It's that simple. Even if one group fights their heart out, if the rest of them lay down their weapons, that one group is going to have a lot of difficulty surviving, and it will end up turning on all of them. If any one of these seven aspects is weak, ignored, unprofitable, then it will prove the demise of the entire life. So I have in this uh, notion, remember Achan. So we have this operation of these tribes that are working together to take a territory. They're all going to get their own land. They're all going to get a portion. They're distinct tribes, and yet they're one Israel. And that one Israel is, has its pieces, right? And Achan, well, all of them are told to not take anything from Jericho, to not touch it. This all belongs to God. The spoil is God's. And it was very clear, guys. There wasn't any stuttering in what uh, was being said. And yet Achan is going to covet and crave, and he's going to take that which is forbidden, and he's going to dig a hole under his tent and bury it. And how is that going to affect the rest of the body of Israel? They are going to begin to lose at I. Why would they lose if God is for them? Because one is not functioning as it ought. And so that one is going to be exposed and it's going to be corrected. And as a result, strength is going to return to the body. And so we see a pattern in that, that for us to be sensitive to the Spirit and His different emphases in our life and not to just allow the one emphasis that God wants us to just do this, and that's, that's the one thing. God wants to make us whole and healthy. And I, I mean that as an individual, and I mean that in working together as a group in here with all sorts of diversities in and amongst ourselves, and I mean that in regards to us working together with the funny body out there that have weird Conclusions that they've come to. You know, that one scripture is like, I can't believe they think that. That's ridiculous. We have all sorts of challenges that we face as a body of being knit together as one. Now, there really are things that don't belong in the body, right? And I'm not going to try and graft it on to my arm and say, yes, that's a valid part of the body. No, that's complete denial of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has come to do. So, no, that is not supposed to be a part of the body. But this group over here, boy, they. They do things different than I do, and I don't particularly, I'm not attracted to their modus operandi. I don't like their emphasis, but they genuinely love Jesus. Oh, those are hard things to deal with. To know how to work together as a body is a deep passion of mine. This is something, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm talking about the, the basics of how Ellerslie was born, with a desire to bring the body together and to literally snub denominationalism as our guide but to allow the spirit of grace, the truth of God's word to actually bring us together as opposed to fracture us. But it's for this reason. I believe that God intends us to function as a whole and not just as a fist. For the body to run properly, every agency must be governed by the same truth, the same God, the same integrity, the same love. If you don't have those commonalities, you can't function together. If you don't have the same truth, like we all agree the Bible is our guide, that Jesus Christ is the head. If you don't have that going, you're going to have a very difficult time working with them to function. I mean, the Nazis and, the, and Great Britain can't function together in World War II. Why? Because they're ideologically apart. One want, they both want the other to stop. Okay, that's not going to work together. And so the same thing happens in the church where you literally, when you take an opposition side and say, I want you to shut up, what you've done is you've actually disabled, you've you've created a war in the church as opposed to the church knitting together to have a war against lies, against idolatry, against pride, against arrogance, against the uh, incoming lawlessness and fear and delusion that is sweeping over the nations. It's like, hey, this is the time we're supposed to be together, not apart. The clattering together of bones into a very real body, Ezekiel 37. I really love the picture, and I don't know if you guys uh, know what story is in Ezekiel 37. I'll I'll read it for you. But what we're going to see is God speaking to Israel in the Old Testament, and they are in a destitute state where they have forsaken life. And so they're going to be likened unto dead people in graves. And God's going to say, even though you are... Think about what this is. It's going to be a valley of dry bones. What's a dry bone? But something that used to be a part of a whole, of a body, but has been dismembered and has separated from itself and has lost the ligament, connective tissue, and all that that would bring it together and has lost its life. And what we're going to see is a supernatural work in Ezekiel 7 Of God taking that which was dismembered, that which was separate, but that which belonged together, if it was truly alive. And He is going to bring it together and clatter it together. Wow. All right. You want to see a desire that I have unfold before us on the screen? Let's read it. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Isn't that a great answer? It's like, I have no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> oh, Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on these slain that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. Oh boy, I, guys, that is, that is exciting. And it fits really well with World War II. An exceedingly great army. Montgomery's seven. We are in such a parallel position with what was happening in world war ii evil has made its encroachment but if the church would rattle together by the spirit of god and allow god to put the sinews back and connect us what could happen i don't know if you guys have the vision i know that we all do at a certain level The more you are close to it, like I am, I'm very close to the division. I know it very, very well. I know how easy it is to not work together. It seems impossible. Just like it would if we were staring at a valley of dry bones and God says, so what do you think? Do you think I can rattle these bones together? Well, God, (laughs) you're a big God. And I'm sure you could do whatever you want, so you tell me. You tell me. What if God told us? that's what I want, and that's what I'll do. What would we say back? Show me what you need me to do. God, first bring me together. (laughs) Rattle me together, because some of us are dismembered, even in our own life, where we have inconsistencies, and it's a lack of integrity. Integrity means a oneness of agreement between the different parts of who you are. In other words, where you're not duplicitous and hypocritical, where one day you say this, the next day you do this. That doesn't even match. How could that be? You see, our seven systems need to come into alignment and integrity. And then God can begin to rattle us together. The Spirit of God has an agenda today. And he wants to bring that ligament together both inside of us to breathe the Spirit power into us as individuals, into us as local bodies, and into us as a global church watch out world if the church gets its game on just a final meditation we are all inclined towards dismemberment it really bothers me too i know i don't like the fact that we are prone to these things but we are prone in the body of christ we are prone to say you know what i don't want to deal with that person anymore i'm not going to be here anymore i'm out and i get it i really do Look at the second part of this. God is inclined towards, and I'm making up a word. Maybe it is a word, but I've never heard it before. God is inclined towards memberment. (laughs) He's inclined towards us being a whole. That's what he's after. Read 1 Corinthians afresh, and you're going to see a dismembered church, and Paul the apostle come in and rebuke it for being dismembered, for being divided, and saying, this is what God's agenda is for Corinth. This is God's agenda for all of us as individual churches, if you want to say houses of God, and as the global house. He has hewn out his seven pillars. He has his seven agencies, his seven operations, and he wants to bring them together so that we can make the knockout punch. But to make that knockout punch, we need to begin to coordinate, humble ourselves, and work with those that are different than us. A fist is looking at that arm going, well, it's not the way I would do it, but... I guess I need you. And then the arm looks at the shoulder and says, you know what? I'm not exactly sure why you're way up there, but, you know, most of the work is done down here, but, all right, I'll allow you to participate in this. I'm going to try and work with you on this. You know, what does a hip have to do with a fist? And yet all of these things, for a body to physiologically deliver a blow, it must be in agreement. I guarantee you, if the heart's not in it, that's... Fist is not going to have a lot of oomph behind it. You know, a fist in and of itself can't harm anything. Just cut off this hand and just lay it on the floor. Are you going to feel threatened by it? It's a fist, it's balled up, and it looks really angry, but you are not going to fear it. But when a fist is attached to an arm, which is attached to a shoulder, which is attached to a hip, and you see a passionate resolve. And you see a mind that is determined and you see the face begin to showcase exactly what it feels. Oh, you're going to mess with the body of Christ? You see that movement and you recognize, whoa, watch out world when the body of Christ actually gets into its position. We're not hitting people, by the way, just as a clarification. But there is a nose on the devil that needs to be bopped. And we are in the position to deal out that blow. Father... I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us as individuals to alert us, to coordinate us, to rattle us together, to bring these different pieces of who we are together in one, in integrity, and that you would do the same for our local uh, version of this body, and that you would do the same for the corporate, the global Lord, we need you to knit us together as one. It's in the precious name that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.